The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Ash and Pia move from hipster Brooklyn to rustic Vermont in search of a more authentic life. But just months after settling in, the forecast of a superstorm disrupts their dream. Fear of an impending disaster splits their tight-knit community and exposes the cracks in their marriage. Where Isol was once a place of old farm families, rednecks, and transplants, it now divides into paranoid preppers, religious fanatics, and government tools, each at odds about what course to take. The publisher describes the new novel, We Are Unprepared, as an emotional journey, a terrifying glimpse into the human costs of our changing earth, and ultimately a cautionary tale of survival in the human spirit. The author, Meg Little Riley, says her novel is an equal parts a small gesture of activism and a love letter to the woods she grew up in. Meg Little Riley is a former Treasury spokesperson under President Obama, Deputy Communications Director for the White House Office of Management and Budget, Communicator for the Environmental Defense Fund, and Producer for Vermont Public Radio. A native of Vermont, she's a UVM graduate with deep ties around the state. She currently lives in the Boston area with her husband and uh, two daughters. Meg Little Riley, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, so you, uh, uh, the first question, of course, we're on public radio here. You worked for Vermont Public Radio. I did, yes. It was uh, my first job out of college, and I was there for three and a half years. It was an extraordinary experience. Uh, what did you do there? Well, I started answering the phones. Um, I did that for a while, <laughs> and it's actually a pretty great great way to figure out what everybody does and what the inner workings look like. And I was totally hooked after that. And I was promoted to be a producer on a local show where we talked about uh, local municipal politics and issues, things like that. Um, I helped run the switchboard and then I helped screen callers coming in um, and then more production work after that. Um, But it was a, it was a fantastic way to get to know the people of the state, and um, it, it was just cool. I liked the technical aspect of it, liked everything. And uh, I, I know, you know, kind of insider in, in the industry, Vermont Public Radio has a, has a great reputation, a great place to, to I guess, cut your teeth there. Um, you went on I learned to, a lot from them. You went on to, to work uh, in the White House, or at least for the White House. I did, you, yeah. You in the White House? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, I was a... a First, I was in, in, in the Obama administration. I was at the Treasury Department. And then in the White House Office of Management and Budget, I was a spokesperson for um, fiscal issues, essentially. Now, I, I doubt you're rubbing shoulders with President Obama much, but I don't know. Did you encounter him from time to time? Or? Yeah, from time to time. It was always, it's always a pretty thrilling experience to be in the room uh, with, with, with a president. You don't usually... Uh, you, you don't get to be in that place without being a, kind of uh, an extraordinary presence. So it was a really cool experience. So now you're from Vermont, right? Grew up in a, I, I don't know if it's small town, Brattleboro. You described it as a That's hamlet. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a funky little uh, town in the southern part of the state, kind of artistic, kind of rural. It's got a, it's got a, a great mix of people. Um, so I'm a, I, I'm a country, country girl at heart. Now you, uh, interesting story how this uh, novel came to be. This is an early morning novel, right? You're still working at the at the White House, so between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. is when this this novel happened. Uh, yeah, I woke up very early and wrote 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 a little bit every morning before I got on our morning White House communications call, um, and did that on my on my walk into work. So it was a it was a rather exhausting year, but. Um, I, I I just woke up one day and realized that I, I couldn't I couldn't continue without doing it. I had to. It was not all been sort of uh, brewing inside of me for a while, and it was time to just go. It wasn't a particularly convenient moment to start, but it had to be done. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, in an interview you gave, you said there's there's a little insanity involved in uh, in, in in any writing. Yeah, I mean it's um. It's not. It's not all that logical. There's a lot of sleep lost, um, and you have to. I think some of it is uh, is is a little obsession. Really gets you out of bed and keeps you going. Particularly before uh, the, the path to being published is 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 a tough one. There's a. It, it takes a long time. You get a lot of no's. Um, but a little of that that insanity and well, passion, I guess, is the is, is the complimentary word for it. Um, it's a nice thing to have. Actually, it feels feels good even when it's hard. 
what was this impulse? What did you want to accomplish with the novel? Well, part of um, part of what I was what I was just interested in exploring with the novel was how we all sort of live with um, a, a new, very contemporary anxiety about uh, a, a changing uh, weather patterns. Uh, there's no doubt that our storms are getting more intense and more frequent. Um, I was also uh, at, at the time, my husband and I were thinking about starting our own family, and so I, I, I had a lot of questions about the relationship that our children would have to the natural world. Um, I, at the, I think it's it's a real privilege to be able to just kind of be be wild in the woods, and I do hope I hope too that our children would have the same thing. And so, in some ways, it was a. It, it, it's a story about conservation. Um, I, I wonder what what they'll look like, um, but also just a celebration of um, of the woods that I grew up in as well. And you guys know because you have it's a it's a wildly different landscape, but boy, it's a breathtaking one in Utah. And it, it seems like you, you're connecting the dots here. Um, I think a lot of our audience would go along with you. Between it's a landscape you love, right? And therefore, mm-hmm. you want to protect, and that's part of the worry, right? I wonder if you could tell me about the, the landscape there, the, the the woods that you, that you love. Yeah, yeah. Well, our mountains are smaller than you guys make them, um, but they there's the part of the story is actually set in the part of the state called the Northeast Kingdom, which is right up in the corner. It's almost in Canada. It's about twenty minutes from Canada. Um, I grew up going to this little modest little family. I think it started as a hunting cabin and it was just a, just a, really a cabin on a lake. And it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of evergreen trees, old growth forests. And there are, there are families there that have been there for generations. And there are some, some wacky newcomers and everybody's kind of coexisting nicely. Um, it's actually, in many ways, I think the mix of old and new probably resembles a lot of the great parts of Utah as well. Um, and one of the things that happens in this story as the, the this great weather forecast comes in and everybody uh, fear starts to mount is some of those, that, that, that cohabitation that it was, that was going so nicely, uh, it, it lines start to draw and the fear kind of brings out, brings out some harder lines and folks people kind of divide up into their respective corners. And and you write that uh, the the fear of what's going to happen can be already damaging. Let alone what's, you know, the the devastation that comes. Yeah, it's really it's really a story about who we are at our most frightened moments, what we turn to, the things that comfort us, the things that sort of that explain what's going on. Um and I think all of the, all of the characters in the story who they each kind of turn to different things, but I found all of those things to be at times relatable and and appealing in their own way. Um, and so I, I got to kind of try on try on all these different worldviews as I was writing the story. I'm a pretty pretty optimistic person in the end, so um, I think and I think that comes through, but. Uh, but fear does interesting things to us, and it's not in this story. It's not the kind of immediate fear that would trigger a sort of fight or flight response. Um, it, it, it's it's the more corrosive, slow, looming anxiety, um, and that has a way of creeping into our our behavior and our relationships. Um, so that was I didn't really intend to write a story about about relationships in this way, but as I kept sort of peeling back the layers of that onion. That's where it took me. What if you'd uh, read the prologue for us? This is just one page oh, yes. long, and, and you get into some of these Fair issues enough. here. It would be narcissistic to assume that the Earth conjured a storm simply to alter the course of my life. More likely, we've been poisoning this world for year, years while ignoring the warning signs, and the storm wasn't so much a cosmic intervention as it was a predictable response to our collectively reckless behavior. Either way, the resulting destruction to North America and our orderly life in ISIL arrived so quickly that I swear we didn't see it coming. Looking back, I realized how comforting those months leading up to the storm had been as we focused on preparing for the disaster. News of the changing weather patterns gave each of our lives a new clarity and direction. It didn't feel enjoyable at the time, but it was a big concrete distraction in which to pour ourselves, even as other matters could have benefited from our attention. 
it was urgent, and living in a state of urgency can be invigorating. But the fear can be mistaken for purpose, which is even more dangerous than the threat itself. That's interesting. Fear can be mistaken for purpose. Um, and I wonder if you think that we're... You know, it's longer term, right? There's just a few months that they have to get ready in the in the novel for the the big storm. Mm-hmm. But if you take this on a, a bigger scale, you know, if if you believe that uh, bigger storms are coming and uh, you know adverse weather is coming and perhaps disaster is coming, if of mm-hmm. course isn't changed, um, I guess there can be numbness, I suppose. But uh, do you think at least some of us are are mistaking fear for purpose? Yeah, and and some of the characters in the story, they they sort of they start to shape their lives around being prepared for calamity, um, which there's an argument to be made that that's a very that's a, that's a very logical thing to do, and it's it's foresight. On the other hand, uh, how do you how do we all live fully in the present and hopefully if 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 we're if we're preparing for disaster, I mean, at some point you wonder: Are you are you are you hoping for a disaster just to make it all worthwhile? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess there there'd be some people you know? that would fit in that category. Yeah, and that makes me think. Um, of, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say as I um, as I researched the book, there's a there's a group of group of folks in this story. Uh, Called preppers. I'm sure. I'm sure you, you know of them. It's just, just a sort of um, unofficial, self-identified group of folks. Exists most on the internet. Uh, kind of disaster preparedness enthusiasts, and that was was so interesting to 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 go down the rabbit hole and learn more about um, preppers and the prepper lifestyle. And there's a range, of course. You know, at one end, it's just folks who want to be more self-reliant. Um, and and you know get, uh, get off the electrical grid, maybe put some solar panels up. And at the other end, it it it's wildly uh, paranoid. And so I, I I had to kind of ask myself, um, whereas everybody gets to decide where the line is, you know, where, between being being prepared and being consumed by the expectation of disaster. Mm. Do you have uh, preppers back east? We're familiar in the West with uh, you know used to be called survivalists. Uh, and, right, you know, right. The, the stereotype is living out in a bunker, uh, you know, somewhere with a bunch of guns and uh, and uh, an element of paranoia. There, there's an, an over. There are others, uh, kind of a substrain that that are just want to get off the grid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, but, I mean, we've got. I I think I think I think we've I think we've got all those varieties. Sur- the survivalists. I, I do think there's probably a stronger contingent at West, just based on you know my sort of unofficial research, but. Um, but they, they come in, they come in all flavors too. You know, I, I knew folks growing up in Vermont who really wanted to live completely off the grid, credit card free, no, um, you know, entirely, uh, uh, self-powered. Um, and they were more of a, a hippie variety of them. And there's, it's like, you know, as I was doing this research, there was stuff I saw where I thought, boy, that's so cool. I, I, I'd like to know how to do this. Um, uh, you know, I'd like to know more about renewable power uh, at the, at, at like the basic domestic level and growing more food. And um, so there's a really appealing logic to, to, to some of it. And then some of it can, it, it, it can, can creep into a, a, a little wackier, I would say. Um but I went in without any biases about it because I think um, I think it's a it's a very it's a very natural human impulse uh, mm. to want to be able to take care of yourself and your family too. No the reaction, perhaps, to this book um, would depend on where you stand on climate change. I would imagine you know, a lot of people just don't don't think it's a real thing. Other people are very worried about it. But I wonder, in a certain sense, if you do, if you think it's a, a really big problem, you're worried about it, would you say we should all be preppers in a certain sense? I think the better, um, I, I, I think, I think the, the better sort of preparation is the more is a, is a longer term kind where we look at um, how public policy affects emissions and things like the things that are contributing uh, to climate change down the road, the stuff that'll help make the world a little cleaner and safer for our children. Um, I'm not terribly prepared still, even having done all this research. Um, 
but but the book itself, it is true. I, I am a I'm an environmentalist, and I'm a firm um, activist on the uh, on the climate change front. But it's not an overtly political story. In fact, I think the term climate change is only in the story once. Um, I think I, I I would be thrilled to talk to somebody who is not doesn't doesn't uh, concur with this science on man-made climate change who reads the book because I I think there's also room there's room for discussion it's really a story also about how humans respond at times of fear in a lot of ways it's definitely not a partisan story um and I think it in many ways is is larger than any political debate Mm-hmm. in the country right now this idea of um how do we do we turn to a kind of rugged individualism or a more communal and collective approach to solving our problems yeah i should point out to make clear this it's you know it's a it's a really good story and as you've said uh, you know people don't want to be preached to in their in their fiction um mm-hmm. there is a term and i, I don't know if you embrace this cli-fi yeah, yeah, I learned about it after I after I put the book out. It's interesting. So, so climate science fiction, I guess, or climate fiction. So, what this is? I guess talking it's, about. It's, yeah, it's it's sort of an organizing term for books that are coming out uh, that have climate change at the sort of front and center in them. I didn't even know that it was a, it was a trend while I was writing this, and it's not. It sounds like sci-fi, but I think it just describes uh, any kind of fiction that that addresses climate change in some way. So um, I think, you know, hey, if it, if it helps you, helps, helps explain a, uh, an emerging trend, I'm all for it. Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll get into talking about the main characters, Ash and Pia, who are uh, from Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn hipsters, and they, they I think yeah. they're both from Vermont, so they go back. And this, uh, as mm-hmm. the novel opens, they're three months into this Bold new life, where they're they're going to go back to and live in Vermont, um, and I'll have you uh, read uh, page nineteen there as well. Uh, following the break, we're talking with uh, uh, Meg Little Riley. Her novel is "We Are Unprepared." More following the break. This is Brian Erickson, and bringing more to life. Patients have the right to make informed choices about their health care. This means that you should be offered the opportunity to compare and make choices that suit your needs. Choice includes the right to select the services you use from hospitals, clinics, doctors, physical and occupation and speech therapists, rehab centers, independent and assisted living centers, home health and hospice agencies, and pharmacies. Information is available to explain your options. If you or a parent are not offered a choice, it should be explained why. Ask questions. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour with Meg Little Riley. Her novel is called We Are Unprepared. Uh, in this novel, Ash and Pia move from hipster Brooklyn to rustic Vermont in search of a more authentic life, but just months after settling in, the forecast of a superstorm disrupts their dream. Fear of an impending disaster splits their tight-knit community and exposes the cracks in their marriage. Uh, Meg Little Riley is a former Treasury spokesperson under President Obama, Deputy Communications Director for the White House Office of Management and Budget, Communicator for the Environmental Defense Fund, and Producer for Vermont uh, Public Radio. She lives in the Boston area. And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll-free. Or uh, you can reach us uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, Megan Little Riley, uh, if I could have you read that uh, portion of page uh, 19. Yes, thank you. We talked about self-reliance in those days as if it was a state of higher consciousness. It was the explanation we gave for leaving our jobs in New York and starting a new life in Vermont. We wanted to grow things and build things, preserve things and pickle things. We wanted to play our own music and brew our own beer. We believed 
This, we believed, was how one lived a real life. There was a pious promise in the notion of self-reliance, a promise that we would not only feel a deep sense of pride and moral superiority, but also that it would ensure eternal marital bliss. Some of this we were not wrong about. It was supremely satisfying to eat cucumbers that we had grown and sit on furniture we had made, two Adirondack chairs assembled from a kit, technically. Pia was taking a pottery class in those days, and our house was filled with charmingly lopsided creamers and water pitchers with her initials carved into the underside, like a proud child's bounty from summer camp. I'd taken a week-long summer seminar on beekeeping, and the unopened bee materials that I'd ordered online were still stacked neatly against the house. When news of the storms broke, we were only three months into this real living adventure, and we hadn't learned much at all yet. That tells you uh, quite a bit about uh, Ash and, and Pia. This is a, a type I think we all all know that it, we talked about self-reliance, they say in those days, as if it were a state of higher consciousness. This is They're embracing a certain lifestyle because they feel like it's a higher lifestyle. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a more desirable lifestyle. Yeah, I think... Um... I, I think in some ways we've we've all got a little of this inside of us innately the desire to be uh, to, to be in un, independent um, and and to do it for ourselves. But I also think that some of it is a is a pretty modern trend too. There's um, you know people in their twenties and thirties. There's sort of a modern back to the land movement going on in different parts of the country. You guys, I know. Um, People who just want to live in a beautiful place, a simple life, certainly go uh, to to Utah um, and Vermont's another place like that. So it's 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 a little bit human nature, and I think a little bit of a commentary on our times. And uh, over the page, uh, Ash says we were smug, sure, but I still believe we were basically right in our quest to find pleasure in simpler pursuits. And they they kind of they have introspective periods where they debate over the you know the purity of their 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 motives. But essentially, mm-hmm. they, they want a simpler a simpler uh, lifestyle. They're just three months in, and reports start surfacing of a superstorm. Did did, uh, did you research superstorms? Yeah. So for the the initial forecasts are just for for a big uh, uh, a big storm season, and then the those those get more refined and specific as time passes. As I conceiving of this storm, I looked at all of the. Sort of the worst case scenario storm forecast for all the big storms we've had in the last ten years, and I dialed them up like one degree or two. Um, but I wanted it to be within the realm of possibility. Um, so this is a bigger storm than the Northeast has ever seen, but it doesn't read like science fiction, and it, it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, as what one of the one of the things that that inspired the story was in my um, final months in uh, my final year in the Obama White House, I remember looking up at a television screen at one point while Hurricane Irene was passing through the Northeast, and there was footage on CNN of my hometown and uh, watching live a sort of rushing river of flooding water going through Main Street and just sort of choking back tears. And it, it, it seemed impossible. It's a landlocked state. It, it's it's not the kind of place where storms like that had ever been before. So that was a pretty extraordinary moment, and it and it really stuck with me. Yeah, it seemed odd to me that there there'd be flooding in Vermont, but I but you know mm-hmm. actually, it happened right, and and, right. and as storms increase in intensity, it could happen with greater frequency. Um, it, it superstorm Sandy that you know that seems like an obvious parallel. Obviously Katrina. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you talk about the, the flooding going on right now, and or has happened recently in Louisiana. Yes, and it uh, it's it it's it so feels so grim. It just breaks my heart to um to be talking about fiction too at a time when there's just there's a lot of a lot of real life destruction. Um, but yeah, I, Sandy was a big the the actual weather powers of, uh, weather patterns of Sandy. I was looking at pretty closely for this one because there's a certain predictability to the way the storms move um, and cross in the Northeast. So some of it was was pretty reliable. I mean, obviously, I'm not a climate um, or weather scientist, but there's it's generally it's plausible in mm. a broad way. And you, uh, reading the bottom of page 16, uh, the radio voices went on. They're listening to the radio, NPR, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, wanted to discuss global ramifications of extreme weather, food scarcity, political unrest, war. And uh, I think a lot of times we don't necessarily consciously connect those dots. 
and you you go on to connect some of these dots on a very local scale. Yeah, um, there. You know, these it's 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 pretty astounding that these things we know they sort of happen in in remote places, uh, but sometimes they happen right here. Uh, is the the flooding that's going on right now in Louisiana, and certainly um, things we've seen in the past with hurricanes Katrina and Sandy. Um, it's it's amazing how quickly order can break down. And then just as amazing is how quickly we forget. Um, I was speaking with a, a radio host in Louisiana yesterday, actually, and he was talking about news fatigue. Uh, the, the, their greatest fear is that we stop, we stop hearing it after, you know, at, at a certain point. Some of that is probably inevitable. It's the way our brains work. But um, how do we, how do we maintain a sense of empathy and awareness um, of of this sort of catastrophe in other places when it's not right there before our eyes, and and they just keep coming, right? So so how do we yeah. maintain that empathy for all the places it's happening? That's right, I know, and in, in different ways. Even um, right now, I'm in the Boston area. There's a, it's a we're in a drought, the worst drought that this area has ever seen. The uh, number of uh, farms around here aren't producing what they what, what they normally do. We're on water bands. I mean, water bands in New England. This I grew up here. This is a strange moment. Uh, so it, it, it it's hard to deny that that changes are afoot. Hmm. And it can be I don't know. It can be isolating. Can separate communities. I'm thinking about when California went through their recent you know horrible drought. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that one of the impulses I had was, you know, thank heaven where it's not as bad here in Utah. But then, you know, then I tried to yeah, counteract I mean, I, that I, with I, and try to be uh, empathize with seems them. Seems like a pretty human response, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you you um, you write a lot about fear and what, what fear does to, to, to people. Um, so in this case, we have extreme weather and, and a mounting crisis. Um, some people turned in your novel to religion, some to alcohol, others to, to guns, uh, that, you know, it seems, seems to fit with, you know, a lot of people that we know. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, I, I don't mean to imply that those are all, uh, th- those are equatable things. In fact, in the story, the, the religion that it refers to is a kind of false prophet who comes through peddling a variety of religion that could make him quite rich. So I think religion can also be a force for incredible uh, strength and goodwill in times of crisis. But in this case, it's something, it, uh, 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 someone with, with darker motives is taking advantage of people's fear. Uh, and, 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 it's, and I also felt a sense of sympathy for the people who were taken by him, because I think it's easy to look for explanations as well, uh, just as it's easy to uh, to understand the folks who turn to, you know, more chemical vices. Fear, fear is hard. Hmm. And of course, we don't have to have an impending crisis. There, you know, we, we face fears every day in our in our lives. This is just taking it to an extreme, mm-hmm. I suppose, and and facing it as a society. It's interesting, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, the mayor... Um, you know, is trying to rally the the community, uh, and then there's a prepper group, mm-hmm. and Ash and P are kind of pulled in in different directions. Yeah, that's right. The the all the big cleavages in the in the community they're coming right down to at the domestic level for them because they're kind of they're picking sides that aren't um, it's it, it, it's driving them apart at home as well and. One of the big questions facing the folks in this town is whether they can all get together to help alleviate some of the expected flooding, but it requires a real communal approach to things. And um, for some, that doesn't seem logical. Um, it, it makes more sense for them to look inward and batten down their own hatches. Um, and so that's another kind of question of, like, what, what's our worldview? What, how do how, how do how do we want to respond at moments like this as individuals? And it's the worldview we, the worldview we have inside, right? That, that we, that's how we respond. Yes, right, exactly. And so it kind of, it was interesting to me to reading, uh, you know, the the book that um, 
in some cases, in some ways, society is fragile, isn't it? We, we agree to get along, and uh, then if pressure is put at pressure points, that's when the real test comes. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. That's that's kind of sums it all up, actually. Um, and it's fragile. Our we're, we're, our nerves are fragile. I think our own sanity can be a little fragile at times, although we can bolster it with good relationships, good habits, all that stuff that we that we already know what we believe in in this world. Um, but we're all fragile as individuals, and and order is a little more fragile than we'd like to believe. As somebody who worked in government, I I tend to think that. The government has things running fairly well, so it was kind of interesting to go down this path of writing this story and ha- and have to acknowledge that that may not be so. Um, I actually, while I uh, it was probably early on as I, as I was writing this story, we had a big snowstorm come through Washington D.C. Uh, we called it it was called Snowpocalypse at the time. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what. Yeah, the I remember that. Yeah. It was wild. I mean, we got like three and a half feet of snow in three days. I've never seen anything like it in the mid-Atlantic. And everything shut down. Everything. Uh, there was for for there were schools that didn't open for two weeks, and the public transportation was just at a standstill. Um, it it was really nuts, and it seemed particularly nuts because this is where all of our elected officials spend most of their time, and it they. In some ways, it also is a reminder that the best way to get the attention of, of our elected officials is to, like, uh, you know, make their Amtrak trains stop running, right? When it's <laughs> right there before your face, it's hard to turn away. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it, it felt a little Banana Republic for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, it, it tested one's faith in government. <laughs> yeah, a real pressure point, yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if you'd go with me just a diversion into current politics, uh, because I, I, it feels like, in the, you know, this endless, very unusual campaign, that there there's some social fraying going on. I'm, re- I'm reading reports that, you know, the friendships are being destroyed on Facebook at a record rate during this political uh, uh, season. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know what this... Uh, I don't know what you th- you know relating this up to pressure points that might come with yeah. extreme weather or or extreme anything that puts pressure on our society. Yeah, I feel like that anger is just it, it is coming from a place of fear, and unfortunately, the the national political discussion, the entire campaign, feels like the, both campaigns the, the the whole discussion of political campaigns feels like. Fear is the only weapon being used at the moment on both sides, and um, it's, it definitely brings out the worst in all of us. And I don't think uh, I, I don't think there's as much to be frightened of as um, as as the national news would tell you most of the time, and the things coming from both political parties. I think I think things are actually I think humans are better than the way it all looks at this particular moment. Mm. Yeah, there, there, there is, you know, it's, it's been studied, right, the, the, the local news effect. The, the, yeah, the local news effect. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why it was nice. Um, it's nice to write about a community, you know, having grown up in a small community. I think um, at, at it, even when things, when things are, are pretty dark at a national level, um, when you wake up in the morning and you have to see your neighbor who you know votes in a different way from you at the grocery store, or at church, or at uh, picking up their kids from the same school, you. I, I just think that that civility is so much more important. And I, th- at the community level, people are people still know how to be kind to one another. And I think the internet is not a great example of what humanity looks like right now because the anonymity really enables um, some, enables some dark stuff. But boy, I, I do have a lot of a lot of faith in the interaction at the community level. So should I disconnect from Facebook and, and go run for school board? <laughs> what, what, what do we do? We probably all should. But um, I, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that this all ends soon. I'm really looking forward to late November when <laughs> I, as somebody who came from politics and government, this is the most joyless 
moment in politics that I can remember. I, I am disheartened. I have, no, I have nothing hopeful to say about it. Yeah, that maybe this Thanksgiving will be will be especially joyful because this you know our that's long, what we'll be giving thanks for. Our long national nightmare will be over. Uh, just just <laughs> just one more political side, and we'll get back to the uh, the, the book. Um, working in the Obama White House, I wonder, and, and I'm sure you never sat down with President Obama and, and had him you know bury his soul to you, but um, it seems like this uh, this phenomenon where the party out of power just refuses to accept, you know, that, that the other party won the White House. And it just seems to have been ratcheting up the last few uh, cycles. Certainly true with, with President Obama. There, there's a whole subset of the country who uh, just did not accept, you know, President Obama. That's where you got the whole birther mo- uh, movement and, and, and the like. Mm-hmm. What was, was that ever acknowledged in working the White House? Was that ever talked about? Yeah, was I it... mean, it, 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 it colored nearly everything we did because... The White House, no president has all that much unilateral unilateral power. So any of the legislative changes that we were um, we were we were trying to advocate for, we needed Congress for. And obstructionism doesn't it just doesn't yield good governance, regardless of which side it's coming from. Um, and I don't. I was in Washington, though I didn't work. Um, uh, uh, I, actually, I worked. I was in the in the Senate um, for part of the time in the in the Bush administration. But but I wasn't. Um, I, I obviously didn't have the same vantage point. But in the first term of the the George Bush administration, it felt like there was a greater appreciation for compromise, um, let it, and getting something done. And it's it's really really deteriorated since then. And there's nothing tougher than obviously having to um, having to work on policy that doesn't feel quite right, but not quite right is a heck of a lot better than nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more harm done, especially to, I think, the most vulnerable people in our society when we, uh, with obstructionism. The, ri- the rich folks in America will, are always going to be okay. Um, but I worry about most um, middle and working class Americans when things are so stagnant in Washington. And I worry that uh, not much is going to change with regard to obstructionism, no matter who is elected to the White House. They're I know, I know, I worry about that too, as well. Not yeah. going to accept whoever is present. Uh, let's... Yeah. Um, Let's end this segment on that cheery note. We'll we'll take a break uh, <laughs> and uh, and we'll come back talk more about we are unprepared. Meg Little Riley is my guest. Her uh, fascinating uh, debut novel uh, is about a couple who moves from uh, Brooklyn to uh, to their native uh, Vermont. They want to get uh, back to nature. They want to be self reliant. Uh, but a uh, a big storm is heading their way. Possible disaster. Uh, we'll talk more about this following the break. Hi, this is Steve Williams. I'm bringing Jazz Time to UPR. Each week I'll feature commentary, history, the occasional interview, and of course lots of music. From ragtime to bop, from Havana to Paris to Logan, Utah, I'll be your guide through the many varieties of jazz music. I hope you'll join me for KCBW's Jazz Time with Steve Williams, Sunday evenings from 6 to 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Provost's Office, Center for Women and Gender, offering an undergraduate minor and graduate certificate in Women and Gender Studies. Information at cwg.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Meg Little-Riley. Meg Little-Riley worked in the President Obama's White House uh, for the Treasury Department, also the uh, Office of Management and Budget. Uh, she was a communicator for the Environmental Defense Fund, was a producer for Vermont Public Radio. She's a native of Vermont, a UVM graduate, and uh, she currently lives in the Boston area with her husband and two daughters. Her novel, a, a fascinating novel called We Are Unprepared, it follows Ash and Pia as they move from hipster Brooklyn to rustic Vermont in search of a more authentic life. 
But just months after settling in, the forecast of a superstorm disrupts their dream. And uh, as the storm approaches, uh, the town is dividing into paranoid preppers, religious fanatics, and government tools, each at odds about what course to uh, to take. And Meg Little Riley says her novel is an equal parts a small gesture of activism and a love letter to the woods she grew up in. Meg Little Riley, I, anytime we talk about preparedness, emergency preparedness, I always connect this. We, we think about this, a lot of people think about this in Utah in connection with the LDS Church, which uh, preaches preparedness, wants their members to you know have a supply of food uh, and, and uh, supplies in case of case of uh, disaster. I wonder as you've thought about, uh, and the title of the book, We Are Unprepared, of course that cuts many different ways. Um, what have you come to with personal preparedness uh, after you've, the re- you've researched this book? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly personally always drawn as like somebody who grew up in a rural place. I do love the idea of being pretty self-reliant. I am far less than I would like to be but I, I am very interested in some of the, the easier aspects of, uh, you know, modern homesteading. I try to make as much stuff as I can at home, grow some stuff. Uh, I'm not great at it, but I, I'm, always, I'm always trying a little bit. But I, it, it, it kind of ends there for me. I, don't, I, ha- I can't figure out a way to be ultra prepared and to not live in a state of fear. I think that that's the challenge. So, you know, now, now we've got, we've got some water in the basement. We've got batteries and all our flashlights. And I, you know, I'd like to um, always keep working on that. Also because a general sense of preparedness, it just, it, it feels like a good, it feels like a good way to, um, to protect your family. Once you have kids, it's nice to, it's nice to feel like you're thinking ahead a little further. Um, but I'm not terribly prepared. Um, I, do I think in the end I, I also come down on the side of I, I think uh, community and and faith and family are are going to be as important as that water we keep down in the basement on some level. Um, so I'm, so I, I live probably more more in the moment than one would think from reading a book like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Um, tell me about that. You said you're, you kind of embraced the new homesteading uh, movement. What, what's, what's the impulse there? That, I can see some attraction to that idea. Yeah, well, well, some of it is just that it is. You know, it's funny, the story, it, it's a little bit of a parody of, uh, of, of these, you know, these, these, affluent 30-somethings who, who have this idea of being more self-reliant. In some ways, I feel like I'm picking on me and a lot of the people in my, uh, in my demographic, uh, and we probably deserve it. But it is supremely satisfying to feel like you know how to do things, right? You know how to, if you know how to grow something you can eat or fix something with duct tape, my goodness, it, it, feels, it, it feels refreshingly different in this modern world to know how to do something with your hands that's actually real. Um, and that, that's, that's especially in the, the kinds of jobs I've had, um, which you could probably, um, they're, they're, they're the kind, they're the kinds of jobs that, uh, don't make you particularly, uh, prepared to, uh, to fend for yourself in moments of a crisis. So I think maybe as an antidote to that, I like the idea of, uh, knowing how to do something that actually could like uh help protect me and my family it's kind of it, it feels like a really um a really uh basic human mammal desire mm. and by the way there's not much you can't do with duct tape so you, you got to have duct tape Oh, I'm that's, with you. That's a that's a necessity. I wonder. I want to finish the conversation here. We just have about three minutes left. To, 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 going back to the land, and I, I wonder. I was interested in the poem you selected uh, at the beginning of part one. I wonder if you could read that. Just tell me sure, briefly sure. why you why you selected this. This is from 1860. All right. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll just I'll tell you briefly. All of the poet there, there are a couple poems in here. I actually, in the first drafts of this, I had lots and lots of them, but um, I, uh, I probably not everybody is interested in um, in, in old archived uh, poetry from the woods. But I, I definitely loved it. These were all this is all poetry written by old Vermonters um, 
in most of it is from the 19th century um and it, it, it all the stuff i selected helps describe the land and the experience of being there so i'll read this one i pine i pine for my woodland home i long for the mountain stream that through the dark ravine flows on till it finds the sun's bright beam i long to catch once more a breath of my own pure mountain air and lay me down on the flowery turf in the dim old forest there Oh, for a gush of the wildwood strain that the birds sang to me then. Oh, for an hour of the fresher life I knew in that haunted glen. For my path is now in the stranger's land, and though I may love full well their grand old trees and their flowery meads, yet I pine for thee, sweet Dell. I've sat in the homes of the proud and great, I've gazed on the artist's pride, yet never a pencil has painted thee, thou rill of the mountainside. And though bright and fair may be other lands, and as true they're friends and free, yet my spirit will ever fondly turn Green Mountain Home to thee. And uh, that poem is called Green Mountain Home, and it is, it's written by a woman uh, we know only as Miss A.W. Sprague of Plymouth, Vermont, published in 1860. Hmm. And I just love the, I love the exuberant adoration for uh, the, for the land and the smell and the air uh, that that speaks to me. And it, it, it for me, it, it and maybe this is part of what you were going for. It, it underscores the universality of this impulse, right? That and the, mm-hmm. what the land and landscape yeah. does for us, and that we internalize this. I'm I'm guessing you carry your Vermont landscape around with you. Absolutely, it does. It it becomes a part of who are who you are, and it kind of it shapes who you are. You guys know um, it being from a beautiful and rugged place. It's uh, it, it it really is is a part of you. Uh, just a minute left. What uh, are you working on? Something new? Yes, I am. Um, I should have. Uh, hopefully, the next one will be out in the next twelve to eighteen months. It's um, going to be set in a different place. Uh, the natural world will play a, certainly play a role, but uh, very different uh, different themes. Some, still some contemporary issues, but that's um, that's where the, the similarities end. So I'm excited to, to talk to you again one day. All right. Sounds good. Uh, in the meantime, We Are Unprepared is out, getting good, good reviews. Meg Little Riley is uh, the author. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. I really had a great time. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. In a very short period of time, we will start to live inside our screens. You get this feeling of what's called presence. Where did you guys get this? It's totally convincing. Whoa. Virtual reality actually mirrors the way that you see the world in real life. Screens have already changed us, and it's about to get crazy. Next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. We go now to commentator Gina Wickwar. I'd like to introduce you to Nachum Yardini, our Israeli tour guide we spent nearly a week with in Jerusalem. Really, you ask? Yep, we left Christmas Day from the freezing, blizzarding Salt Lake City Airport, underwent at least two de-icings, and then finally took off on the first leg of our journey to the Middle East. I'll leave out all the parts about missing our plane connection to Tel Aviv because of the snow and the de-icing, having to spend Christmas night in a Toronto hotel, and then having to be rerouted through Frankfurt to get to Israel. You really don't want to know the details, though I will add that we'd become so jaded by the time we landed at the reigning Cats and Dogs Ben-Gurion Airport, we didn't even blink when we learned our luggage was lost somewhere in the bowels of Air Canada. After filling out forms with the lost baggage folks, we dejectedly plodded our way to the main terminal area, wondering if anyone would be there to greet us, us a day late and wearing two-day-old clothes. But the happy face of Nahum warmed our hearts as he greeted us. Waving a placard with our names on it, he shouted, Shalom, grabbed our carry-ons, and shepherded us to his van. Within moments, we were on the cold and rainy highway to Jerusalem. He dropped us off at the King David Hotel and promised he'd meet us in the lobby at 8 a.m. sharp. 
and he did. There were two other couples joining us on this pre-Egypt foray into Israel. One of them had arrived on time a day and a half earlier and had already explored Bethlehem in the rain and cold. The other couple had arrived even later than we did the night before. Their delay had also been an Air Canada fiasco, uh, so there was a bit of anti-maple leaf muttering. But Nachum more than made up for our early pains. The day was bright and clear and chilly. Bundled in our fleece jackets, we got in his van and began the first of several full-day explorations. Jerusalem, they say, is one ancient city, three major religions. Even if the purpose of a visit isn't a religious one, you can't but succumb to Jerusalem's beauty, its history, its centuries of tradition. I'll talk later about the Jaffe Gate, the Wailing Wall, the Via Dolorosa, and much, much more. But I want to leave you today with this observation. A religious Jew with vast scholarly knowledge of his people's history and the Old Testament, Nahum also displayed a sweeping comprehension of Christianity. He easily recalled pertinent New Testament passages, quoting them with such feeling and verve, the six of us felt like Sunday school naifs. Even more beautiful, Nahum's appreciation of our, quote, new religion reinforced that special Christian Judaic heritage we all shared. It was truly a wonderful beginning to our Israeli adventure. This is Gina Wickwar. Imagine a world without borders. Nations spend so much time and energy policing and controlling borders at the cost of so much human suffering. Why should so many people's fates be determined by the place they were born? Rethinking Borders, next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI. Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Ask Me Another, we know you go down television streaming wormholes. We know you're feeling separation anxiety from your remote control. You know what? We're going to reward your winter television dependency because we have actor Zazie Beetz, who stars on the Golden Globe-winning television series Atlanta. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. When I was leaving, I said, speedy delivery, Mr. Rogers. And he said back to me, speedy delivery, Mr. McFeely. And it's been my catchphrase for 40 years. Join us next time for more true stories told live. Mr. Rogers, Bellevue, Supermarkets, and Coney Island. That's the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our listeners and the USU Provost's Office, Center for Women and Gender, promoting discussion and research on gender issues and the intersection of social justice and culture. Information at cwg.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Ridgefield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.